This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. My name is Lindsay Gibbs. I am the author and founder of the Power Plays newsletter about sexism and sports. I am thrilled to be joined today by two of my fabulous co-hosts, Jessica Luther, freelance sports reporter in Austin, Texas, and the author of the upcoming book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. And Dr. Amir Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State University. Today, we're going to be discussing the new Title IX regulations, unfortunately. Amir is going to talk with Allison Mariella Desir, endurance athlete, activist, and mental health advocate about Ahmed Arbery and the whiteness of the running community. Finally, we're going to give a quick overview of the U.S. Women's National Team lawsuit and the latest news there. And we're going to, of course, do Badass Woman of the Week. And we're going to celebrate. We're going to throw some things on the burn pile. And we're going to end talking about what's good in our lives. Thank you all for joining us um, as the lockdown continues for all of us. Jess, Amira, how are you? <laughs> Still here. <laughs> yeah, managing day by day. In my house. Yeah. Of course, we want to thank our patrons for keeping us going. If you go to patreon.com slash burn it all down for as little as $2 a month, um, you can support us and make sure that we can keep this podcast going. And also, so this week is our three-year burn it all down anniversary, believe it or not. Our, Our very first burn it all down podcast was released three years ago today so that is it's just we haven't missed a week we love you all so much and it's hard to believe we will be having a zoom chat amongst the five of us co-hosts and that's going to be out on our patreon page so for as little as two dollars a month you can get access to that and we're very excited to kind of share some of our memories from what has been just a phenomenal three years All right. <laughs> uh, we got a lot of heavy stuff coming in the show today. <laughs> so I want to start out just, though, with this Adam Schefter tweet that I have not been able to stop thinking about all week long, <laughs> just to kind of get us get us in a little lighter, lighter fare. On May 7th, Adam Schefter, ESPN reporter, tweeted this. ESPN will air a three-hour NFL schedule release show tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern. <laughs> Sorry, I can't even say it without laughing. <laughs> It will highlight key matchups, schedule flexibility, and ultimately, hope. (laughs) (laughs) Jess, how how does that make you feel? (laughs) Can you, like, what what goes on in Adam Schefter's mind? Like, did, 
I don't, I just don't understand him a lot of the time. And I've never, I mean, he's such a water carrier for the NFL and ESPN. And I don't know, like, hope? I don't know. <laughs> I, I still don't even understand how the NFL thinks it's going to play right. in the fall. Like, this seems ridiculous that they I eat a three-hour that I actually had. A, I didn't even read all the way to hope because I laughed when I got to three hour. <laughs> which is, like, I was just like to reveal a schedule. I don't know. It just seems like I'm sure Adam Schefter is very hopeful is what I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Amira, did you have any? Yeah, did I, did like this make Jen, you hopeful? <laughs> no, it did not make me hopeful. It made me perplexed. The emoji face where you're like, hmm, with the fingers like. <laughs> That was me. Anytime I saw it, like on Instagram, on Twitter, I was just confused. Like, I was like, why are they hyping a schedule release for a season that's not going to happen? I don't understand this. Like, they, like, they're just like clinging desperately to, maybe that's the hope he's talking about. They're so desperately clinging to this hope that football is happening in the way they think it's going to happen. And I was just like, even like a schedule release is like the most, it, it's asinine because even if you're gonna have a football season it's not gonna start on time kickoff yeah. weekend is not gonna be when you think it is gonna be why are you telling primetime games like that's gonna be a thing hi yeah yeah it's Whew. not hope it's, it's delusion. delusion oh my god <laughs> mind meld <laughs> no but my favorite i think response was uh our twitter friend uh, and you know friend in general curtis zimmerman who said i'm gonna in 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 every sentence from now on with and ultimately hope (laughs) 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 just to like try and uh you know here on burn all down today we're discussing title (laughs) nine lots of bad things going on in the world but ultimately hope (laughs) so uh you know i'm gonna go do my laundry and ultimately hope (laughs) that's like uh the fortune cookie in bed yeah. Is, yeah, maybe there's a new one. This is the coronavirus version of that. That's oh my god, that's so good. Unfortunately, this week, new Title IX regulations came out, and we are going to have to discuss them because we are responsible people who stay on top of the news. Jess, you want to get us started here? Yes. No, yes, I will do it. (laughs) So almost from the very first moment that Betsy DeVos was confirmed as the Secretary of Education, she set about rewriting the guidelines for how schools handle reports of gender harassment and violence. And I'm going to do a short recap just in case anyone doesn't know this already. The reason that schools and universities are tasked with handling reports of gendered violence is that under Title IX, federal regulation, educational institutions that receive any federal funding cannot discriminate based on gender. To do so would deny people their civil right to access education equally. Gendered violence, because it often leads to all kinds of issues that cause those who are harmed by harassment, stalking, domestic violence, or sexual assault, it makes it that much harder for them to go to school, including the possibility that they will have to share space with the very person who has already harmed them. Schools have to have remedies for this under Title IX. This system runs alongside the criminal punishment system, and it often mimics how the law handles it, but it is a civil system that has a different goal than the courts. It's about maintaining civil rights to access education. I can't say that enough. The Department of Education is in charge of creating the guidelines that instruct schools on how to properly meet the requirements of Title IX. Those new guidelines are what we're talking about today. I'm not going to go over everything that the Department of Education has changed because the document outlining this is over 2,000 pages long, and it's kind of exactly what we all thought it was going to be. So here are some highlights. 
The new regulations allow colleges and universities to decide which employees, including members of the athletic department, like coaches, which ones will be mandatory reporters. If any official with, quote, authority to institute corrective measures on behalf of the school, like a Title IX coordinator, hears of a report of harassment or assault, they have to respond to it. Schools can now choose between using preponderance of evidence and clear and convincing evidence as the standard of proof in the cases. Before, preponderance of evidence, which is the standard used in civil cases, that's essentially like um, 51% of evidence on either side is enough to rule in that side's favor. That was the standard. Clear and convincing is a very high bar to reach, especially if you're thinking about these kind of investigations and just this kind of harm. It's a very high bar to reach. Also, live hearings and allowing for cross-examination are now part of the Title IX process. Survivors and victim advocates are particularly worried about the chilling effect on reporting and re-victimization for those who do report that, that this in particular will have. Schools only have to deal with reports of harassment and violence that take place on campus during school-sanctioned events, or in specific off-campus places like fraternity houses. So even if one student harms another, if it took place in, say, a private off-campus apartment, Title IX doesn't have to remedy any fallout from that. Schools have until August 14th of this year to get everything in place to meet these guidelines. We know that they are are issues with athletes at universities and K-12 through schools, right? We know that athletes deal with all of this. You can basically Google any school and find athletes who've harmed another student. But also, over the last few years, we have seen a series of cases where staff have harmed athletes, including at Michigan State and Ohio State, among others. We know the NCAA has felt pressure to do something on this. Last week, my burn pile was about how slow they've actually been on this issue. They do now have a policy, but it's still very unclear if it has any teeth, if the NCAA will ever do anything about athletic departments that fail to educate about and respond to reports of gendered violence. I'm just not feeling great about all this (laughs) at this moment in time. I don't know. Where do you guys want to start with this? Yeah, there's so much to torch about this. I think it's just important to, to point out, and this is something I hadn't thought about this much, that much until talking with a lot of advocates and experts this week, is the fact that, you know, a lot of the focus has been on the cross-examination and these live hearings, which, let's face it, we don't even know if uh, schools are capable of doing this, (laughs) these live hearings. um, Most people are going to have to drastically increase their capacity for these hearings, Get do a lot more training. And it's very unlikely that all can be done, especially by August 14th and in the middle of a global pandemic. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But as much as like there's focus on these individual strings of this policy, the overall point is to reduce liability for schools. The whole point of this, and I firmly believe that, yes, they would have spent, you know, Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump are very, very committed to making life very much better for rapists and making abuse much more tolerable in society at large. But I don't think they would have gone through this, which these are 2,033 pages of regulations 2,033 pages. They don't go through all this unless it's to reduce liability for schools and to save their friends money. Ultimately, these guidelines are expected to, via the education department's own 
calculations, reduce reports up to 50% and save universities up to $400 million. The ways they're going to do this is um, not only by all these chilling effects throughout the laws, you know, less reporters, um, cross-examination, but also these standards of proof. Jess mentioned this a little bit, but first of all, sexual harassment now has to be considered severe and pervasive, where it used to be severe or pervasive. So that standard is higher and that substantially raises the bar. Also, uh, you know, schools can now choose to use the clear and convincing evidence standard instead of the preponderance of evidence standard. And also schools can now just must find that a school or school employee was deliberately indifferent to misconduct, which is a higher legal standard and forces you to kind of prove the school's complete state of mind. So all of this is just to basically save money for Trump and Betsy DeVos's rich friends. Jess? Yeah. Okay. So I did want to talk really briefly about mandatory reporting because this has been like a big thing. And so there's a lot of good intentions behind the mandatory reporting. You like force people to report no matter what. So they aren't making judgment calls about which things to report. It removes ambivalence from a system that tends to favor those who harm, right? So like I totally get the good intention. I worry in practice about what this actually means, specifically that the burden of mandatory reporting is going to fall on women and LGBTQ faculty and staff and probably most likely staff and faculty of color because it's, it is students from those populations who are harmed more often and because those particular staff members seem more trustworthy to the harmed students, right? And not all students want to report and not all schools with mandatory reporting rules have good alternatives for those students. So I do worry about what this means in practice, especially for those staff members who and faculty members who are dealing with with that. At the same time, I'm not sure that this functions in the same way in athletics, though, and this is what worries me. I mean, athletics, you have these tight-knit single-sex groups. I would guess, you know, like football coaches hear all kinds of things that like a male economics professor (laughs) might not hear about. And so I do feel a certain way about these new regulations removing mandatory reporting from athletic administrators and coaches. Schools can still make them mandatory reporters, but that's a choice they have to actively make. The reason mandatory reporting is ever necessary is because of the culture on a campus that has people sticking up for athletic departments or teams over and above the safety of other students. That's not changing. That's a massive cultural problem that's going to take way more things than mandatory reporting to fix, but still a forcing reporting makes that people safer in the interim. I worry for the students whose cases are, you know, again, going to be ignored or purposely forced into silence. And we know that that is exactly how these things happen specifically in athletic departments. Yeah, there's some reporting that maybe due to NCAA guidelines and safe sport guidelines, that coaches will still have to be mandatory reporters. But excuse me if the NCAA and safe sport as my backstops isn't making me feel super warm and fuzzy right now. Amira. Yeah, they inspire no confidence. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I, I just want to take you guys on the ground um, to Penn State, where I think you can see a lot of the, the problems with these regulations. So first of all... <laughs> 
exactly what Jess was saying about mandatory reporting as a member of departments of African-American studies and women's gender and sexuality studies, our rates of disclosure from students are, are way higher disproportionately based on the subject matter that we teach, the accessibility and the often hidden labor that underrepresented professors are already doing in this space. And these are spaces where even over the last few years, you've seen department meeting after department meeting, trying to sort through these, the old regulations and Title IX and mandated reporting. So there were already things on the ground that people were really struggling through. And then if we look at Penn State, the other thing we can see is one of these shifts in policies and the way that the language of freedom and equality and whatnot around Title IX is being appropriated by the DeVos administration. So in 2014, the Obama administration opened up an investigation at Penn State for Title IX compliance stemming out of in the wake of Sandusky. And that has been ongoing. And that was taken over um, under this new administration. So in March, this past March, the Department of Education announced their final report that concluded this six-year investigation. Now, pay very close attention here. They announced major violations of, in terms of Penn State, major Title IX uh, violations. And on one hand, if you start reading them, a lot of them are stemming around Sandusky. But then there's a shift in the document. And then the rest of the things that they're citing are from 2018 to 2020. And majority of that observation centers on, quote unquote, due process and the rights of the accused. So within the report about Title IX violations, aptly pointing out the many failures institutionally in the wake of Sandusky and other things that they have seen, they clump in and bolster the report with all of these incidents or claims about the rights of the accused um, and really what we're seeing in terms of cross-examination and, you know, being able to question your accuser, et cetera, et cetera. Those are what's make up the the back bulk of the report. And yet the headlines, you would just see that it's one. And so I think that that's one of the ways that we can see how complicated and appropriate this is. The second thing is the concept of, of the fact that the schools are going to have to implement this by August 14th is absolutely ridiculous. Ted Mitchell of the American Council of Education recently said it's incomprehensible, as cruel as it is counterproductive. It, it would be ridiculous anyways. They've had three years to go over these regulations. They're giving universities three months at the height of a motherfucking pandemic where people don't know if they're going to be open in the fall. People don't know if they're going to survive this. Colleges are closing. People are being furloughed and laid off. And on top of that, you're going to want everybody to restructure what they do with, uh, with things that they don't even understand because nobody fucking understands Title IX. And that brings me to my last point. If you're listening to this and our discussion of this and you're confused, or if you're reading a news story and you're confused, if you read the report itself, if you slog through 2,000 pages of it and you're confused, know that that's literally the story of Title IX. I mean, the law is passed in the 70s. <laughs> Nobody knows what to do with it. By 1987, they literally had to pass a supplemental act to quote unquote restore the broad scope of coverage and clarify the application of Title IX. Not even a decade later and people were like, we still don't understand what's what's going on. And part of this is intentional. The messiness of the legislation is intentional because it allows for loopholes so that people can fudge number on women's teams and, and still look like they're compliant or they can fail to report or they can protect their money, right? And the other part about it is it's about control. And so that's part of the 
reason this April of this August 14th deadline is so terrible, because if you're not in compliance for it, that puts your funding in jeopardy. That gives the federal, the Department of Ed more control over your money or over what hoops you need to jump through to get it. And they're setting up a hoop that is going to be almost impossible for many, many schools to comply with. Title IX is intentionally confusing. And, and that's the thing that this these 2000 pages, like it's right in line with that. Yeah, and that's really good. And there are a little bit, we've been talking mainly about the university's points. Some of these points are different for the K through 12 um, ranks. Uh, Tyler Kincaid wrote a great piece for NBC News focusing on the K through 12, and we'll include that in the show notes. And I also link to it in Power Plays, where I wrote about this for subscribers this week. But, you know, ultimately, I think there's two things that I'm going to, you know, always remember. It's that this administration, the Trump administration, has been when it comes to making policies, when it comes to guidelines, they've been the least detail-oriented people <laughs> in the universe. <laughs> and sudden, it just really shows where their priorities are, that they they kept focusing on this, that this was their big, this was the thing that they, they followed through on and 2,033 pages worth of follow-through. Um, there's a quote actually from a lawyer who represents a lot of the accused who has been, you know, very pro what DeVos and them are doing. But he still had a quote that I really thought was telling where he said, if the Trump administration had put half the thought into the coronavirus as they did into the Title IX regulations, we'd all be going back to work now. So once again, just really shows you where the priorities are going forward from all this. We are a lot of advocates. There's the National Women's Law Center is already taking the federal government to court over these. So there's going to be a lot of legal action to follow. Additionally, um, I talked with John Gabrielli, who is an advocate with kind of the student focused and student led organization. Every Voices Coalition, and they are really focusing on making sure that state laws can come in and fill in the gaps. So there's going to be a lot of pressure for states and individual universities to pick up where the federal government has now left off. So we want to keep focusing on those things. Next, we have Amira's interview with Allison Mariella Desir. So today I am joined by Allison Mariella Desir, who is the founder of Harlem Run, among many other things. She is a mental health advocate, an athlete, community organizer, and she might be one of the best people to talk about and try to process the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. She wrote a wonderful piece about the whiteness in the running world for Outside Magazine. I recommend everybody run out and read that piece. Um, and today we're going to chat about the inherent whiteness of running and the running community and the you know, ripple effects, the ramifications of the latest shooting of unarmed Black people. And so, Allison, thank you so much. Welcome to Run It All Down. Thank you so much. I want to say we have an additional special guest, my son, who'll be chiming in, but it really is an honor to be speaking with you. Yes, I want to start first and foremost with just saying, how are you? I know you celebrated your first Mother's Day this weekend, and what a heavy weekend it is. Yeah, you know, so this weekend I made a point to not really be on my phone, not really be on social media. But the thing about it is, like, it's it's so emotional in and of itself, like the the murder of yet another unarmed black man, and then there there were two additional murders at least on Friday, right? So it's this is unending, and then on top of that, it's like 
now I'm so happy that my piece is being read, but it, it, it puts this extra responsibility where I'm getting emails from from white folks, well-meaning white folks yeah. telling me they bought the book and they're so excited. And I'm like, okay, welcome to step zero, you know? Like, right. You're, I'm glad, like, or people thanking me and I'm like, you're welcome. It's just, it's a lot of energy. Yeah. And there's this duality that I feel where on the one hand, like I'm, I'm enraged, I'm angry, I'm emotional, but then there's also very much like the teacher side of me and like the mental health advocate and the wanting to work on this. So, I mean, that's a duality that like black and brown folks, marginalized folks feel. So feeling all the things. Yeah, certainly. I mean, and that's the thing. I, I'm really glad you brought this up. Me and Shireen talk about this a lot. Um, we have we say bitches be laboring, <laughs> bitches be laboring. Um, the amount of emotional labor that it takes to do this kind of work. And so when I read your piece, I applauded it. I was so happy to see it. I shared it widely, of course. Yeah. And I also was like, whew, what an undertaking. Because like you said, it immediately puts this burden mm-hmm. right on you for <laughs> well-meaning white people. And then also like the sifting through the awfulness yeah. that comes with being a truth teller in this capacity. So I did want to return to this piece of the piece that we're talking about, Ahmaud Arbery and the whiteness of the running world. This is so necessary. It's so necessary. Can you talk a little bit about what compelled you? You know, you write about it in the piece, but when we're looking about that running community, what compelled you to pen this? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's funny, like I was talking to my partner, my husband about how I wrote this piece and like not to be like... Mm all grandiose, but I was thinking about like Da Vinci talking about Michael, like how he, he made the piece. And now I can't even remember the, 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 Michael the, the, the statue of David. Right. And he, mm. he talked about how like he wasn't building statues, but he was sort of like revealing the form, like the form already mm. existed and he was inspired to reveal it. And that's sort of how it felt when I was penning this. Like I, I sat down, Molly from outside magazine told me that I had this opportunity And she said, you know, if you need a week to do it, let me know. And I sat down and it just sort of like poured out all at once. But, and it sort of just flowed out of me because I think it's something that we are always like bitches be laboring, right? This is always on our minds. And from so many events where I find that I'm the token on the panel, or I find that like I look around and there's very few people who look like me that there are always conversations that I'm having with black and brown folks that we have to have, or we seem to be having and totally unknown to white folks. I just felt like I had to write something and I wanted to do it in a way, you know, I've been in a lot of school. I have two master's degrees. All my school is from Columbia. I was like, I know that I, I need to write this in a way that can break through. So I knew that I had to humanize myself. I knew that I had to tell the story in a way that wouldn't be too aggressive, but that would be poignant and would would move folks to action. And I'm really excited that that's the case. But again, this is this is just the start. Certainly. And so one of the things you you pick up on there is that, you know, the kind of one of the grand myths that that cultivated this running community is that running is this great equalizer and that everybody can kind of take to the pavement or the grass or, or the sprawling hills and together run and kind of unify around that love for endurance running and, and community formation. And part of what you're doing is is saying, exposing this for what many people already know and feel is, is completely completely a grand narrative that just doesn't feel applicable for marginalized people within that community. What's it like to be part of a running community as um, as a Black woman, as, as a marginalized person? Um, and how can this moment reveal some of those 
cracks in that in that foundation of that community? Yeah, I, I think, you know, excellent question. I think it goes back to that duality, right? Like I had another conversation recently with um, one of the founders from FlowTrack, which is, I never thought that I would have the opportunity to be on that in that platform because that is also a very white space. But he was asking me things like, generally runners say that they get such a mental release and it's such a beautiful feeling to go running. Does that mean that you don't feel that? And I was like, mm. the thing is, I feel that and I feel a sense of terror, right? And and this is like the duality that we deal with, that we know that running is a beautiful thing. In fact, I came to running for my mental health. But at the same time, I know that when I'm on the run, I'm subject to forces that are completely beyond my control and that the legal system isn't even there to back me, right? So I think, and this is not just true of my experience, this is true of trans folks, this is true of you know the LGBT community. And I just think because anti-racism is an active thing, like it's not enough to just say I'm not racist, right? Like right. it is an active everyday thing that you have to participate in. And that kind of consciousness is really only in the minds of, of folks like us. Right. Exactly. And I think that, you know, you raised this point about how there's been this kind of new movement about around runner safety. And a lot of that, you know, we've seen a lot of mobilization around safety for like women runners and, you know, safety in terms of like where you can run. But I think that you touch on the negotiations that people have to make who who are marginalized in that space. So COVID, you know, has really changed the game in a lot of ways, but people have still been able to run. But then it becomes the negotiation of, does this face mask make me look more threatening? I had a colleague who um, runs with a jogging stroller and he was like, so if I wear a face mask, am I more threatening? But I have a stroller, so am I less threatening? (laughs) Like, what is that complex negotiation you have to do to constantly, you know? Exactly. The high level mathematics of, of, of blackness, like what, you know, what is that right calculation that will make you make sure you get home safely that night? It's so true. I, you know, I think about the, me making that choice for myself, like, am I going to go out and wear a mask? And I think to myself, okay, well, my neighborhood is relatively quote unquote safe. I do have privilege myself, right? I have an education. So maybe I can talk myself out of whatever the person would want to do with me. You know, like these are very real things that we think about. And I've been disappointed in the coverage of, of running, like running very much has had a boom people have been talking about, but people haven't been talking about the way that intersectionalism plays into this and the way that folks are impacted differently. So you start the piece in a way that immediately resonated with me because you narrate what it's like to now think of these questions, which I, I know you've been thinking about for some time, but the urgency, perhaps the way it resonates now with you having a son. I am the mom of two Black boys, and I have a a Black girl as well who I'm equally as concerned about. But that immediately hit my heart because I think one of the things that that also raised for me, and I want to shout Sam White here, soon to be Dr. Sam White, who works, she's a, a part of the running community, and she works on a Black girlhood and and physical culture. Mm. And she always talks about youth culture in a way that really kind of has put it on my radar more. And I was thinking about this when just reading that first paragraph of your piece, because I think about what does this mean, not just for Black men and Black women, but for Black girls and Black boys, especially when we know that Black childhood is 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 very constrained because Black girls and Black boys are seen as adult far earlier 
than their white counterparts. Um, Tamir Rice was constantly described as a man despite being 12 years old. And so when we're thinking about running community and we're thinking about how that trickles down to youth spaces as well, it just struck a chord. Like I, I felt myself kind of gasping for air thinking about doing that calculation is my, my sons are adorable and really cute. When, when do they cross that line to be a threat? Yeah. When I, when I look at my son and I think about the ways that I want to set him up for success and the ways that I want to introduce him into the outdoors and the ways that I want to give him access to things that I didn't have until I was older. But it, there's also in the back of my mind, to what extent am I setting him up to feel too comfortable, right? Because mm-hmm. there's the idea that even, so another young black man who was killed this weekend was, he was speeding, right? He was doing something stupid. The, the police were pursuing him. In the end, he was shot multiple times. And at the end of the video, Apparently, I didn't watch. Apparently, you can hear one of the cops laughing and saying that mm. there's not going to be an open casket, right? Like, did Ugh. this kid do something stupid? Yes. He was 20, 21, right? The amount of stupid things people do. But white people, white men have a boyhood that extends until their 40s and 50s. Honestly, Hell yeah, exactly. Right? And so, God forbid, I make my, fun, my son feel so confident that he's in the trail and he doesn't avert his eyes or he doesn't, God forbid he wants to have a relationship with a white woman God mm. for a white man. God, forbid, You know what I mean? Like I think about how I have to prepare him to be like confident in owning spaces. And then also really understand that you're shrinking yourself as a means of survival. Right. There are moments when you can be an activist, but I need you alive. You know, so it's just, I mean, it's, it's just, it's terrifying. It's, it's awful. I mean, like I think about that Facebook group that popped up in support of the men who killed Ahmad, And one of the lines that says he wasn't listening. He didn't comply with simple commands. And mm-hmm. I think you just struck on something that resonates so deeply is like, how do we teach our child or our children, our black kids to take up space and to be full citizens and to be, you know, fully human and recognize them as fully human, knowing that there's moments of life or death that depends on their ability to shrink themselves into a kind of second class citizenship. The fact that if they're confronted with two white men who roll up on them with rifles, that complying, even though they have no authority, is the difference between perhaps getting home at night or not. And that's, it's, I don't have words for what that yeah makes you do as a parent you know what and, you know and, you know like what with this piece what i was trying to convey also is that like this is just our everyday reality on a simple run right mm-hmm. and, and yet and still people want to make this the like, running seem as though it's not political as if our identity doesn't matter when i mean look at the olympics the whole thing is political right, right. look at like castor semenya she's trying to compete and people want to get in her pants right like so it's just it's just such a fallacy and so I was trying to break it down and like, can't you see that like literally every day, this is a fear and the way that my, my, inter- my identities intersect, I have a fear because I'm a woman. I have a fear because I'm a black woman. Mm-hmm. I have a fear because I'm a black mother. So yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it really is beyond comprehension to have to live like this. Certainly. And, and, you know, I think that the, the, what it does mentally and this is something I want to go back to that point you made about releases you can get from running. So on one hand, you have the anxiety over safety. You have, you know, the general anxiety of being Black mothers. You have postpartum 
right? right? You have all of these things that are weighing on your mental health. And then you have running that's supposed to be a space that really helps with that. And in many ways it does. Do yep. you feel like, you know, how do you negotiate a space that is supposed to be a space of release that also comes with its own tugs on your mental health? And is there a way for people, you know, listening and people kind of mudding through this themselves? Do you have any kind of tips or techniques or suggestions for people protecting their mental health while managing these anxieties and still looking towards running as outlook? Yeah. I mean, wow, what a big question, right? But it's, <laughs> it's, it's definitely part of my everyday reality. I think that one thing, so for me personally, and this is not the case for everybody, but for me personally, this this sort of second double consciousness, right, if I can borrow that phrase, is always there for me, this sort of sense of fear. But I will say what helps me is being present. And I, I also thank my son for this sort of like mindfulness that I've developed because I, I mean, even in this moment, I'm talking to you as I'm watching my son like tear up the floor. Mm-hmm. Like, like my son allows me, when I think about all the terrible possibilities and all the systems that I want to bring down, then my son will like poop or he'll, <laughs> he'll smile or he'll tumble. or And so there's very much like I'm brought back to this present moment. And that's really ha- how I'm able to enjoy the run, right? Because I'm able to think about my breath in this moment. I'm able to focus on what I'm seeing, right? Like many times connecting with your senses, like what am I seeing? What am I feeling? Feeling grounded, all of those things allow you to come back to the present. I mean, that's really what I can offer in this moment. That's really what's helping me. Also knowing that we're so confined to our apartments and rightfully so because of the pandemic and green spaces, just getting outside really does have a positive effect. So it's just, I mean, it's back to that, those calculations of to what extent can I put myself out there today? Um, and maybe it doesn't work for you every day, but I think mindfulness and, and, and staying present to the extent that you can is really, uh, you know, what I can offer. Yeah. And I think the other thing that you have demonstrated through your career is finding community within the community. Um, yeah. And so I want to I want to big up Harlem Run, especially. Yeah. I mean, I know it's hard right now. I can't imagine fostering this running community Specific, particularly in Harlem, in the time where New York has been so decimated by COVID. But, you know, can you just speak to a second for, for finding these kind of carving out your own communal spaces within the running community? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you, you said carving out because the thing is, I didn't find it first. I mean, I, I came into running and I, I found community and I found some folks who were really great and helped me through the first marathon. But I knew that I wanted to create my own space that was rooted in like vulnerability and in mental health acceptance and in, you know, black and brown folks. And I think that what's, you know, we haven't been able to run together. We've got a lot of virtual stuff going on. But one thing in particular that has been so fun and so sweet to see is we've started, some of us in leadership have started running to each other's apartments and like leaving signs outside for each other or like waving from windows. And so it's sort of like, it's just this novel way of being like, I see you, like you're important to me, like you're still my neighbor in the midst of this. But truly like the text and the, the love and particularly around Mother's Day after this response, if it weren't for Harlem Run and Run for All Women and these, these other communities that I created, I would feel completely alone. Yes. So, you know, it's possible to find folks within this very white space who are like-minded. And, you know, if the work of, this is not, this is not our burden to teach white folks, right? right? Some of us will choose to do that. 
but by no means is this like we all should start doing this like we're just trying to survive on top of it all Mm -hmm. right so um find your people and find safety love that and the last thing i want to talk to you about is like you 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 certainly picked up the burden of teaching you give book recommendations and everything for people who did hashtag run with mod who did their 2.23 miles you know i think for me i knew i found it really cathartic certainly but but i watched how it spread and it hit the running community i'm part of the Peloton community and there was like a lot of support there. What is the next thing, right? What It's one thing to run 2.3, 2.23 miles and make a hashtag. But if you're a white person within this community, that doesn't replace actively being anti-racist. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why, you know, like I made these three recommendations because I was like, the thing that I don't want to happen is exactly that. Like, I did, I did the hashtag. I did the run. Like, okay, I feel good about myself until the next thing happens. So I think the next step is, is a really unsexy step of doing the work. And the work for me includes reading those two books that I mentioned, but really the reading is in service of your own self-development work, your own racial identity development. And I think this is what's critical that people, many people don't talk about, that it is possible to have a white racial identity that is not tied to white supremacy, mm. right? But, well, white people don't learn about whiteness because whiteness is the default. Yeah. So I can't imagine what it is to be a white person, but it must be something like, I'm white, everything is in service to me, whether you know it or not, yeah. right? So you don't think about like where you're really from, like I'm white, I'm American, like this is my space, like I could go there, I could do this, right? And I don't mean to make this sound silly, I'm just trying to trying to imagine. And so when you develop an identity, white racial identity development, which is actually something that I'm going to talk about in my Meaning Through Movement tour, is a process by which you look at yourself, look at your privilege, look at the ways that you're you know, benefiting unnecessarily, look at the ways in which you are privileged in the media and in, in, in every single space. And how can you love yourself and love where you come from without having to be the standard without Mm. having these entitlements. And that requires active work. So, you know, there, if you're in the running industry and there's a bunch of white CEOs all in a room together, maybe you look around and you wonder like, where are the other folks? Like, you know, certain, if it's all white people, you should all be committed to anti-racism, but certainly there must be other diverse voices who are missing in this room. And how can you make it so that those voices are in the room? How can you amplify those voices. So, you know, the, the, the work is really, like I said, it's unsexy. It's like, you got to read, you got to start understanding what these words mean, because I have to say, even the least formally educated, right? The person who doesn't have the degrees like I have, a person of color understands how race works in this country. Right. And the same cannot be said for white folks. So yeah, do the work, do the reading, ask yourself questions. People often say that they're nervous to make mistakes. They don't want to say the wrong thing. Guess what? You're already saying the wrong thing. At least say the wrong thing in service of progress. You mm. know? And that's really where I am, where I'm at. And like for right now, I feel compelled to continue to have these conversations and offer resources. But when I don't, like, don't talk to me. <laughs> you know, like, there, there are a lot of us out there and it's, it's, it's a, the burden is on the white folks. Yeah. And, and I think that this is a slog fest. It's a process. It's not, you know, it's, you said, like you said, for the next time, because mm-hmm. we know there will be one. 
and um, you're not gonna like it's not gonna be like revelations right and left and you're getting chills all the time and like it's not it's really a slow process and it doesn't feel good because you're questioning yourself and I always say this because I think it makes people more feel more comfortable like I don't know why it's just a, it's a thing that I do but I can be taken to task for my ableism right mm-hmm. for, for my transphobia which is also like just like white supremacy transphobia is built into the fabric mm-hmm. of the world right I can and should be taken to task for that. And that is work that I must do. So if I, with my marginalized identities, can do that work, then white folks certainly can. And it's not going to be pleasant all the time. Right. And in fact, it shouldn't be, right? Like unlearning. Exactly. (laughs) If it feels good when you're doing it, then it's probably not doing the work it needs to. Yeah, Um, exactly. Well, I really appreciate the time and the effort that you're putting in and I so appreciate, you know, you taking up this space and and creating and cultivating that space for others and really charging the running community like so many other communities to to yeah. figure the shit out. You know, I think of uh, the words that Aja wrote about you, I, the last kind of stanza of this poem. I move, I am a movement focused and fierce. I smile, I laugh, I lift and carry sisters. I am most free running for freedom. And that at the end of the day, I feel like is it. We're trying to get free. You know, yep. we're trying to be in a space where you can go running, you can take Corey out for a run and not do such a complex math. Exactly. Exactly. A simple thing you know. at like ten PM in a sports bra right. <laughs> with my son you know, we will have made some progress. Right, exactly. And so, you know, I said this before and I think of Sweet Honey and the Rock a lot and Ella Baker and and say, you know, we who believe in freedom cannot rest. Mm. And lucky you're an endurance athlete because the road is long. But I thank you so much for the race you're running and for those who are bringing along and elevating with you. And of course, for taking your time and doing this work and sharing it with Burn It All Down. And I want to thank you for your platform because... I often look to you all for what is relevant, what's important, what should I be tuned into? And yeah, you know, it takes all of us. So thank you very much. All right. So a couple weeks ago, we got some new news in the U.S. Women's National Team's lawsuit against U.S. soccer. We wanted to give you all a quick update and quick rundown of what's going on there. Uh, Mira? A couple weeks ago. It was last week. But every time, what is time anymore? Well, by the time this comes out, it'll be a couple weeks ago. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, and it was not the update that many of us were hoping for. And so where we are now, the judge in uh, U.S. Women's Soccer Equal Pay lawsuit has rejected part of the U.S. women's national team's claims. And so just a part of them, but they are a significant part. Namely, they found sided with the Federation and said that the Federation has proved that the women were equitably compensated. In fact, they agreed with the Federation that women had actually earned more than the men's team over the past few years that were included in the lawsuits. This decision will be appealed most certainly is not certainly not the end of the road. In fact, there's other parts of the case that are still going forward, namely around travel and accommodation, um, as well as team staffing. That trial is still set to begin on June 16th. But what we have here is um, certainly a blow to the case. Um, finding with the U.S. Federation. And let's be clear, this was always a case about data. This was a case where both sides 
employ their own experts to interpret that. And then we know the saying goes, lies, damn lies, and statistics. It was really a court case where both sides were trying to make the numbers work in their favor. And so one of the things that the women are certainly going to take up on appeal is the way that the data was interpreted by both the Federation and the judge moving forward. Now, there used to be some hope that this proceeding to the Ninth Circuit, which one, which is one of the more liberal circuits in the country, particularly when we're looking at labor and civil rights issues, there was a chance of overturning it. However, that, like many other places, has secretly been padded with a lot of conservative judges under the Trump administration. And so I don't think that, you know, thinking about this being overturned on appeal is really something to bet on. And so what we have here, what we're left with is a part of the case certainly moving forward, but legally equal pay um, in terms of actual payment they receive from the Federation really being dealt a massive blow that leaves it a bit scrambling, even though everybody's on record saying we're fighters, we're going to keep going, we're going to appeal this. And so that's really where we are. Jess, Linz, what are your thoughts on this from where it stands at this point? Yeah, I, th- I think the chances were always high that the legal route was going to let us down. Like the law tends to function very, very narrowly. So like this suit in particular, it only covered a few specific years when what the women are really going after, right, are historical and systemic issues. And the law is often not great at dealing with those things. I did want to say I mean, this was a lot. I felt demoralized when the summary judgment came out a week, two weeks ago, (laughs) whatever we're saying about that. But these women undoubtedly won in the court of public opinion. I mean, U.S. soccer, it dug itself a massive hole when it comes to the reputation in order to win this thing legally. And I don't think we should discount like how important that's going to be moving forward. I mean, shoot, the what president lost his job over this and was replaced. So, I mean, I do hope that that part of it will help in the long run. Man, what a bummer, though. Yeah. One thing that is really frustrating about all this is the fact that the men being bad, so bad, has ended up hurting the women. So essentially, in the summary judgment, the judge, Gary Klausner, accepted the U.S.'s argument, like we've said, that the U.S. women's national team had been paid more than their male counterparts, not less. But the thing is, the only reason that was true within this time period is because the U.S. US men's national team failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup in Russia. If the men had qualified, even if they had done poorly there, if they had just qualified, they likely would have won, had a lot more money than the women. And therefore, you know, that argument would have been completely moot. (laughs) So, You know, if that's just not a metaphor for fucking everything, I don't know what is. Uh, I want to leave kind of I've been thinking a lot about this quote from the Molly Levinson, who's a spokeswoman for the players. Um, She sent out this week. It says equal pay means paying women players the same rate for winning a game as men get paid. The argument that women are paid enough if they make close to the same amount as men while winning more than twice as often is not equal pay. 
the argument that maternity leave is some sort of substitute for paying women players the same rate for winning as men is not valid nor fair nor equal. The argument that women that the women gave up a right to equal pay by accepting the best collective ar- bargaining agreement possible in response to the Federation's refusal to put equal pay on the table is not a legitimate reason for continuing to discriminate against them. So that gives you an idea of the mindset going forward. And to me, when you boil the statement down to that, when you boil the argument down to that, you're going to get a lot of wins in the court of public opinion. Amira? Yeah, certainly. And I just really want to highlight, emphasize, you know, underscore the point Jess made about the limits of the courts. And really, that's to me what this comes down to is that the courts offer certain recourses. But when we think about labor disputes in this country and workers' rights, and don't get it twisted, this is what that is. The courts really haven't been where what pushes change. Workers' rights have come from the streets, not the courts. And there's a long history of that in this country from 1881, where black women, washerwomen went on strike in Atlanta to 1909, uprising of 20,000 textile shirtwaist women workers, the Pullman porters of the 20s, the postal workers in the 70s, fight for 15 happening right now, uh, women in other federations around the world who are taking action outside of legal parameters, whether it's striking or protesting on the field, whatever it may be, these are the things that really have traditionally moved the labor needle. Like Those are things that are building blocks. And I think that while it's easy to be discouraged, those are the things to seize upon for mobilization moving forward. And and the fight is certainly, certainly not over. All right. It is time for the most cathartic, (laughs) at least, portion of our show, The Burn Pile. Amira, (laughs) can you get us started? (laughs) Oh, sure. So I want to talk about Mississippi. It's where my parents are from. Um, But yeah, Natchez, Mississippi. Anyways, so back in February, I'm not sure if if this was on anybody's radar, but back in February, there was an announcement of a massive welfare uh, scheme, embezzlement, fraudulent scheme that happened in Mississippi. And this resulted in multiple arrests and basically accused of six people of working together to embezzle millions of dollars from public money for uh, TNAF, so Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. And they used the Mississippi Department of Human Services along with this nonprofit called the Mississippi Community Education Center. And so I want to highlight a few things that I want to burn within this ridiculousness. So the first and foremost... They're taking this money from the state that is earmarked for the poorest of poor families in Mississippi. And of the six that are accused of doing this scheme, and includes this family that's really well known in professional wrestling. Hall of Fame wrestler Ted Tobias, his son, is implicated in this. Um, so, for instance, of some of the money that was supposed to go towards drug education actually went to go to pay for his cushy rehab stay in California. Other things that happened was a massive amount of this money was given to Mississippi universities for athletic facilities. There was millions of dollars awarded to the University of Southern Mississippi. Nobody really knows what was happening there, but they built a volleyball center that was used exactly once for any kind of community 
enrichment. In addition, they they track that a lot of this money went to paying for football games or basketball games. It was funneled to multiple schools that also included paying salaries of academic counselors for student athletes, basically only. And while they're doing all of that, none of it's going actually to the families who need it the most. The most egregious thing about this came out this week where it was reported that Brett Favre, yes, that quarterback, got $1.1 million for speaking engagements that he never attended. Again, $1.1 million from the Mississippi uh, Department of Human Services for speaking engagements that he never attended. Now, he has since contested that and he says, well, um, I did ads for three years for them and I was paid for it. It's endorsements like anybody else I've done. So I don't appreciate the auditor says that I just took a million dollars and didn't show up for things because I did do the ads. I don't really care if he did it or not. The fact that he received a million dollars from the state of Mississippi for the block grant that was supposed to go for the temporary assistance for needy families is disgusting. And let me tell you why I'm particularly about this. Let me tell you about Mississippi if you don't know. Mississippi is one of the poorest states in our country ranks 48th for poverty across the board. Almost half of Mississippi's Black children live in poverty. The Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program in Mississippi has been gutted compared to national averages. A report a few years ago demonstrated that in Mississippi, families receiving benefits from SNAP benefits received roughly $170 a month versus about $442, which is the annual, which is the national average. What's almost worse is that 23% of people nationally are about receiving SNAP benefits. Only 8% of Mississippi families in poverty are accessing this. Why? Because Mississippi continuously raises the bar for what qualifies you for these benefits. Currently, the benefits are reserved for people who are making a monthly income of $680. $680. And so as gutted this program is, you still have a a large amount of Mississippians depending on this these benefits to eat. And we're talking about people who make less than $680 a month. I've been there. I've been there where food stamps are the only thing standing between you and, and food for your kids. And this is the money that you're appropriating for a fucking volleyball wellness center for a cushy rehab stay? This is what you're reappropriating to give a million dollars to Brett Favre, whether he made ads or not. People are out here struggling to eat and you're giving this motherfucker a million million dollars to do an ad at a sporting event? For fucking what? People are starving. This is disgusting. I'm so frustrated. All everybody involved, I just want to burn it all down. Burn. Burn. Jess? Man. Favre went to Southern Miss, too. I'm not saying there's anything there, but that's interesting. Okay. There probably is, though. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this week, Dan Bernstein at Sporting News reported that the University of Texas Regents in a closed-door vote on Wednesday gave three UT football assistant coaches raises that totaled together $268,000. Each of these coaches will now make over half a million dollars annually. Honestly, that's ridiculous all by itself. The bloat is in college coaching salaries in men's football. It is just, it's out of control. But it's even worse in the larger context. 
Last month, the local paper reported that, quote, there no longer will be a centrally funded pool for for recurring merit raises for staff and faculty who have spent the last month scrambling to move more than 9,000 classes online. The school justified no raises by saying it was necessary to not have to do layoffs. Also, according to the local paper, quote, UT is reviewing large expenditures and said only those that are essential to the core function of the university will be approved. That was about three weeks ago, and now these fucking assistant football coaches are getting substantial raises. And as I said before, each of these men coaching on a team that went 8-5 and five last season and lost to Iowa State will make over $500,000 per year at a university where the median salary is $60,000. While some schools have football and basketball coaches and athletic directors taking pay cuts, UT has gone the other direction. At a time when we don't know when football will get back on the field and during which professors and other staff are working their asses off to keep the university going, the actual essential staff, more money is going into the pockets of fucking football coaches. I'm so mad about this because I am a student at the University of Texas. I pay tuition there. It is my money that those regions are using to line these men's pockets. It makes me so angry. I don't even know where to put the emotion. I just want to burn all of that with all the oil that you can find in the state. So burn. 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 I want to burn um, Brendan Leipzig. I think that's how you say it, of the formerly of the Washington Capitals, an NHL player whose Instagram direct messages were leaked this week from a private Instagram chat he was having. And the comments in this Instagram chat were so vile, so misogynistic, so hateful, that honestly, I was, it it was stunning. He is in this chat with friends really talking about, uh, you know, aggressively about sex lives and what they're going to do to women, um, aggressively treating women as conquest, as physical, specifically calling out the weight of one of the wives of his one of his teammates and who um, recently gave birth <laughs> and talking about what this did to how they viewed her and really not going to go into detail about the exact rhetoric because it's just that appalling. There were a dozen at least screenshots tweeted. They include him, you know, insulting his teammates, insulting former teammates, and they just go on and on. A a few things about this were disturbing. Number one, um, the comments themselves, obviously. Just the fact that, you know, this seems the way the worst trolls on the internet are speaking about women. And I guess there's nothing saying that the worst trolls can also be NHL stars. Um, You know, we like to think of trolls as these nameless, faceless, unsuccessful, not powerful goons, but that's not the truth. Um, Another thing was the reaction to first, like, well, there was a backlash of, well, what would happen if your Instagram messages were deleted, were, were, were shown, or, you know, this is just guy talk. And, you know, it just underscores a great double standard. I thought someone on Twitter really put this well, which is, you know, when you talk about how sex is an evil you know, men can be at times, especially in sports, there's this great not all men chant. You know what I mean? Like, that's not really true. When something like this leaks, they say, well, that's just how men talk. (laughs) So, you know, you can't have it both ways. This is inexcusable for any person to be talking about, let alone a grown adult. 
And he was uh, fired by the Washington Capitals. And that is the exact right move. You can't bring him back into the locker room after this. You just simply can't. And being an athlete does not give you the privilege to say stuff like this, even in private. And honestly, if we could weed out all the bad people by having their DMs released, I'm all for it. Let's just do it. Let's do a cleansing. So I would like to put Brendan Leapcheck on the burn pile, like to put these comments on the burn pile. And I would like to find put anyone making any sort of excuse for these types of comments onto the burn pile. Burn. Burn. All right. After that burning, it is time to lift up some badasses of the week. Let's talk with uh, Brenda Boskill, a Canadian sailor and 2016 Olympian working on the front lines of healthcare as an ER nurse in Oshawa, Ontario. Nzinga Prescourt, a two-time Olympian and 2018 senior world team champion who was motivated to start an initiative after a recent racist incident to ensure that black fencers had safe spaces and support in U.S. fencing. Alyssa Montano and co-founder Molly Dickens announced the launch of And Mother on Wednesday, a nonprofit helping mothers thrive at home and at work. This week, the University of Minnesota announced that Piper Ritter was the head softball coach at the University of Minnesota. Uh, She's been the assistant coach there since 2008 and been a mainstay there since a Minnesota softball. She was a Minnesota softball player and a top pitcher from 2001 through 2004. We love seeing female athletes getting head coaching positions. We want to give a a congratulations to Alex Morgan, um, eternal flamethrower, who had an early Mother's Day present when on May 7th, she gave birth to Charlie Elena Carrasco. She calls her her super moon baby on Instagram shared a beautiful picture. Congratulations, Alex, and of course, all mothers. And can I get a drum roll, please? Our badass of the week is Formiga, who is still around. After finishing the Olympics last year, there were thoughts that she might retire. Instead, she has resigned with PSG 25 years into her professional soccer career. Legend. All right, friends, what is good? I will. I can't start, Jess. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, So I'm going to say Normal People, which is the show on Hulu. It's been adapted from Sally Rooney's book. Uh, Aaron and I like sped watched it. We watched it over three nights, which for us is pretty good. It's not like uplifting. It's not necessarily going to make you feel good. It'll make you feel I had never read the book. So I actually went and spoiled it for myself to find out the ending before I started it. So I would have like, I knew what emotion I was building towards. I will say if the leads hadn't been cast so perfectly, it could have been like total garbage. But the two leads are phenomenal. Like they make the whole thing. And so I I enjoyed that even though... It's not like, uh, yeah, like I said, it's not uplifting necessarily. The other thing is that my family is super into, well, I am super into, I've frozen a bunch of cookie dough. Like I scoop it out as individual cookies and then I freeze all of it. And so every night I pop some of that into the oven and we have warm cookies for dessert. This is like my quarantine thing. Um, But the thing I specifically want to mention is World Peace Cookies, which I'd never heard of before. Someone on Twitter, and I should have looked up who it was, very nicely sent me this recipe, the one by Smitten Kitchen. 
It'll be in our show notes if you want to make them. They're chocolate on chocolate on chocolate, and they're so good, warm, and I just adore them. So those are world peace cookies, and they are definitely what's good in my world right now. I would like some, please. That sounds <laughs> incredible. Not much of a baker here, but uh, now would like uh, to just be one of Jess's children. That would be good. <laughs> yeah, I had, you know, I would say this week was a little bit better than the week before that, which was a little bit better than the week before that. And, you know, mental health wise, life wise, that's, you know, going in the right direction is kind of all. I can, uh, you know, I'm going to take it right now. I'm just going to take it. What's good is my dog. Lots and lots of snuggles lately. I'm just so appreciative to have Mo, especially during this time. So appreciative to my co-host. Like we said, three years is just remarkable. And, um, you know, it's it's really to think about how much I've grown and learned in these three years uh, just kind of gives me chills. And think of all of our supporters on Patreon and all of you who listen to us every single week. There's no greater joy in my life than when someone tells me I listen to Burn It yes, All Down. Yes. There's just really not. It's just <laughs> like I want I want I can't wait till I can get back to hugging people who tell me this. <laughs> but uh, but it, you know, and and I want if you don't want me to consensual hugs only. But I, I really love <laughs> um, love hearing that. Amira, yeah. So despite their terrible ads, I got a Peloton. And it is my favorite thing in the world, I have to say. I really, I'm in a Black Peloton community, a Black Girl Magic group, um, academic moms group. I'm having so much fun. I'm working out like twice a day. And I really like the instructors. I like have cried during workouts, like because I've been so inspired. Um, And then I was so, I've never seen fitness instructors like own their their blackness or their identity in this way or like know that their brand has so many people who have different politics and just not worry about like walking on eggshells and so the black instructors this week were very vocal about the killing of Ahmaud Arbery and um, there was many groups who coordinated on Peloton and group workouts doing that 2.23 miles for his 26th birthday and I think one of the most stirring moments was this one Peloton instructor, Alex, um, in the middle of his ride, talked about uh, how he he was sick of seeing people who looked like him, who talked like him, who walked like him being killed. And and he couldn't imagine if his mom didn't have him here this, this weekend for Mother's Day. And so he led everybody through the end of the workout doing 26 all-out intervals, 20, uh, intervals of 26 seconds all-out for Ahmad's 26th birthday. And it was just, I've never seen anything like that in in this kind of setting. And that was really impactful. I want to come back to that, but I did want to note that this would have been Penn State's graduation weekend. And I have wonderful honors thesis students, shout out Aaron and Lily, who successfully defended their thesis. I wanted to shout out the students that I've been able to work with for four years. This is the graduating class that I've had for the first time the last four years that I've been at Penn State. And so there's a lot of them who are graduating who've been very dear to me while I've been here and has made my job, you know, are the best parts of it in many ways. And I also wanted to give a shout out to Sam White, soon to be Dr. Sam White. She has her dissertation defense at the end of this week. I'm very excited. I'm so sorry we're not being able to do it in person, but I just wanted to, you know, give her an early shout out for that. And I wanted to circle back to Ahmad, and it's a simple burn, right? 
stop killing us. Just stop killing us. I'm yet again <laughs> so tired in this place. It's exhausting. You know, they say the state to be black in America is to be in a state of constant rage. And it's also just to be in a state of exhaustion. I'm just sick of seeing the spectacle of black death. This one was really hard. And, you know, this happened a few months ago. One of the things that we saw with the case is that, you know, again, we need video. Like people need to see the spectacle in order to move the needle. But I wanted to close the show thinking about that and thinking about all the mothers, particularly Black mothers, from Sabrina Fulton, right? So the moms of Trayvon Martin, of Tamir Rice, of Akai Gurley, of Eric Garner, of Rakia Boyd, the the mothers of the Black trans women who are being killed at absolutely alarming rates, Paris Cameron, Ashanti Cameron, Kiki Fantroy, all of you, all of you, and now Ahmaud Arbery. I just... I'm holding you, holding space for you, thinking about you. And I want to close out by taking the words of Ella Baker that are sung so beautifully by Sweet Honey in the Rock. That is a song that I always play in these moments that I've played far too often over the last few years. But that reminds me to keep going. We cannot rest, flamethrowers. Press on. Keep going. And we'll see you next week.